This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. For the listeners today, uh, Mark Thiele is actually one of my mentors. Been chasing this guy for a long time and following his direction, trying to become like Mark Thiele. So it's a, it's a great honor, a great privilege to have him on board today. Thank you again. You give me you give me too much credit, Nabil, but I appreciate the flattery. Thank you. I want to be like Mark Thiele when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy that's recording in Hawaii. Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and to our listeners where you're at today and how you got there. So I'm, I'm a, a little bit of a strange beast. I actually come from a very tropical background. Wouldn't have known how to even spell computer when I was in high school uh, or certainly the years before that. I bounced around for about um, seven or eight years after high school doing odd jobs and accidentally um, accepted a position into a data center in somewhere around 84, 85, 1984, 1985, maybe it was 86. And it's all been history since then. I um, spent a bunch of time working in a traditional old style data center with a mainframe, couple of mainframes. And HP bought our company. I got into client server, started building teams around the world, support desks, client functions, got into data centers, uh, web development teams, et cetera, et cetera. Around... 2003, 2004, I was working at a company called Gilead in Foster City, and uh, we were growing like crazy. They grew 10x in revenue uh, over the four years that, uh, four full years that I was there. Um, they went from 200 million to 2 billion in revenue. And uh, when I first started, there were there was myself and two others in infrastructure, three of us. So we had to build the team and build infrastructure globally to support this company's manufacturing and and research and development in um, different parts of the U.S. and in Europe. And um, and that's where I cut my teeth really on not only principles of things like SREs and DevOps, but also the primary principle of every good SRE, which is doing more with the same amount of people and resources next year that you did from what you did this year. And from there, I went uh, and focused more on data centers because I built a, a data center for them. And uh, I, for some reason, fell in love with the idea of data centers, mainly because I thought that there was a lot of opportunity to improve the data center environment. Founded an organization called Data Center Pulse with my brother-in-law in 2008. Uh, was involved with the Green Grid for a while. Uh, was involved in Infrastructure 2.0 at the, at the beginning of cloud with people like James Urquhart and, and uh, Chris Hoff and Vince Cerf and people like that, trying to determine the best way to, to make cloud more of a universal technology, uh, available, universally available and usable technology. That didn't go very far. Everybody wanted to make their money instead of uh, worrying about doing that. And um, spent uh, some time at VMware during that time. And then I got into the cloud space pretty early in a direct way, joining a company called Service Mesh, where we were doing uh, original multi-cloud management with with virtual or with uh, graphical policy governance and everything. Um, uh, but unfortunately, it was just you know eight years too early, 2010, 2011 period. And then went back into data centers, uh, joined a company uh, in Las Vegas, which is where I live now. Spent five years there helping with building their ecosystem and evangelizing them, uh, and then went back to the cloud space in the form of container management, 
uh, and which is where my interest in edge computing really took uh, a deeper hold on me. And for the last four or five years, I've been spending a considerable amount of my time worried about what the edge could be and should be when it grows up. And so that gets us to where we are today. What unique skill sets have you developed over time? Yeah, it's interesting. Asked of me by my boss at the time, probably around 1993, early 93, late 92, my boss, his name was Scott Anderson, came up to me and he said, Mark, you haven't applied for the help desk manager job. And I said, Scott, I'm still barely learning how to work on a PC um, as a PC support technician. And uh, he said, well, I don't like anybody else that's applying for the job, so I want you to think about it. So I took the weekend, and I thought about it. And I thought, okay, realistically, looking myself in the mirror, which is something you know we, we all need to do on a regular basis, and, and a lot of us are not that good at, is self-reflection. I looked at the mirror, and I said, you know, really, am I going to be the guy that's tearing apart kernels, building my own DLLs? wanting to tear apart OSs and machines in my garage on the weekend? No, that's not me. That's not where I get my thrill when it comes to the use and benefit of technology. I get my thrill from the overall solution, from delivering the service and and creating it and delivering it in a unique way that drives additional value, um, creates more efficiency, uh, creates differentiation for the business in question, rather than being really excited about any one of the nuts or bolts associated with making it work, right? And even the same thing can be said for data centers. So it's my long way of saying that my real skill set, I guess, is um, I'm reasonably good from a leadership standpoint with a technology, a strong technology undercurrent. And I'm, um, I'm reasonably good at uh, seeing trends and understanding how those trends may um, add value or, or impact the direction of a company or the direction of technology choices. Um, and I've used those fairly well throughout the years to help different organizations with their growth, with their technology adoption, um, uh, with strategy in gen- general for anything from data centers to, to cloud adoption to edge development. So based on where we're at today, what advice would you give the younger generation to follow your footsteps. We are seeing a major gap between our age group and the younger generation whereby nobody's really talking about the foundation. Nobody's really talking about how it's made. People are so used to information now at their fingertips that they don't want to get into the nitty gritty stuff, whereby we are creating that huge gap of human capital to develop, sustain, grow the core infrastructure and different platforms. What advice would you give the younger generation whereby it's a little bit more sexier for people to come into that space? You know, you mentioned sustain, and uh, um, and this may not be sexy, but uh, sustainability is a, is a word I often use, um, and I apply it not just to whether we're using too much energy or recycling tin cans, but um, sustainability in the way we um, hire and develop talent uh, for an organization, right? Because that sustainability is, is the single most important uh, aspect of success for any organization is, is the treasures that are the employees of the company are what make the difference. And if you don't have sustainable strategy there, then uh, you might as well just quit the game. You know, for, for young folks, uh, it's really hard. Uh, there are a lot of competing messages out there. People like Peter Thiel saying you don't need a college degree anymore. Uh, I never got a college degree, but I would guarantee that I would 
recommend that anybody who has the chance get a college degree if they can, when they can. Um, I, I don't like the messaging that comes out of some organizations. Oh, just learn how to code and we'll hire you. Um, because yeah, that's great. But I think that that has the risk of creating um, too myopic of a focus of employees. Uh, and I think people with greater visibility of the environment around them and how it impacts the greater uh, organization or how their organization interacts with the rest of the world, I think is crucial. And I think lessons in things like history and art and and world progress and economics are, are all at some point uh, influencers along with just having a, a, a life uh, of experiences are influencers on on how you make technology choices. So beyond those things that I'm both in favor of or against, depending on, on what I was talking about there, I would say that the, the best way to think about uh, technology as being sexy is if, if you like to think of yourself as being able to change and adapt, if you like to be able to think of yourself as someone who could single-handedly have the opportunity to make or break the benefit and the future of the company from a revenue standpoint or from a differentiation standpoint. If you want to be able to tell your friends, your parents, your kids in the future that what you do is literally what allows them to go through their day and be successful in executing their day from finding their way in their car to finding someone uh, in the park via their phone to to um, determining how to cook breakfast, to responding to an emergency, all of those things are delivered based on the kind of work that people like the three of us on this call do and so many others uh, across the industry. And, and frankly, I can't think of any more exciting place to be except for the fact that I have a little bit of a martyr syndrome. And if I could become a doctor or a nurse overnight, I would do it just so I could throw myself in the line of fire and maybe protect even one person from having to do the same. Um, but beyond that, uh, I can't think of a better place where, where change is ever occurring um, and your individual opportunity to add amazing value should you decide to do that is unsurpassed in almost any other industry. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, you know, what's interesting about that is technology is not this kind of aside to our lives anymore in the same way that it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, everyone literally is using all of these elements of technology and takes for, for granted. That, and I wonder if, you know, one of the, the core principles in what you're saying is that, you know, kids, as they start acclimating to technology earlier and earlier, need to be exposed to not just how it works, but why it works, you know, not just, you know, how to use the particular app, but where that app exists, where it lives, what it's connecting to. So it's not, you know, such a taken for granted type of experience. No, I think, I think that's um, an important point. And it's, it really, it's, it's interesting dichotomy because as I'm sure Philip, you've heard, uh, Nabil, you've probably heard a hundred times throughout your career. We don't want people to know they're using the technology. Technology. We just want them to know that they're successful because they are using the technology. And that's a valid point. But that being said, it's nice to know when you're driving on a road that the people that built the road probably knew a little bit about engineering and didn't build a road that would collapse out from underneath you or that the bridge you were on would handle the average plus 
X percent weight of a fully loaded bridge of vehicles during rush hour, or that an airplane, uh, based on the amount of luggage and the amount of people in it, could expect to travel this distance at this speed and not run out of gas. You know, those are all things that we take for granted as we travel, but most of us inherently understand that those those are the realities of, of what we live with every day, and technology should be no different. Our ability to understand how this magic happens, I think is, is important to us um, feeling better about how to use it and feeling better about how to interact with it. Yeah, so we had this guest last week and we talked about mindset. And you know, it really turns out that we haven't really had an educational system change since the last industrial revolution. People are stuck in the same way of thinking. It's also developed a mindset of just taking everything for granted, just like you just said right now. And also that there's a sense of entitlement that it's mine. I don't need to know the details. I don't know how it's done. Nobody, nobody really gets into the nitty gritty stuff or wants to explore it further. In your opinion, does the educational system in the US or well-developed countries for that matter, do we need to start looking at modifying it some way, form or shape? And also, uh, vocational trade schools, would they help in creating a level of interest and awareness for the younger generation to start getting into a little bit more deeper, not necessarily at a coding level, but from starting to explore and be more curious how things are done and how it's made and how the world is connected? Yeah, I, I think there's uh, there can be little argument that our current education system along with um, the working hours of the vast majority of organizations across the country is broken. Our education system and our working hours are designed around the factory floor. Punch in at eight, punch out at five. It's just that simple. Our rote method of education versus understanding how the world around us works with what we're learning about, uh, what I like to call experiential learning, are inability to differentiate by and large between learning styles, information exchange styles, across children, uh, across uh, potential futures, etc. Um, I think we miss an enormous number of opportunities. You could take my life, I guess, as an example. Maybe I'm an exception, or maybe I got lucky, or maybe it's some combination of the above. But it's telling that I could be uh, could could be that I'm a, a white guy too, a little bit of white privilege in there. But it's telling that someone who missed fourth, fifth, eighth grade, literally had almost zero education other than reading books during that time, could go right back into high school with nothing but a refresher in math for the first quarter I was in high school or first semester I was in high school, um, and then go on to build a reasonable life. What that tells me is I could be an exception, but it also potentially tells me that the experiences, the challenges I faced, the decision-making that I had to go through as I grew up being a kid uh, in a place that had very few protections, that, had, that, that the term helicopter didn't exist, and even if it did exist, my mom would have grounded the helicopter, tore the blades off, and emptied the gas tank. I was literally on my own to kill myself or kill others or, or you know, ruin my life the way I saw fit. But what it gave me was an immense amount of experience about humans, about myself, about being able to make decisions in times of crisis. Those crises oftentimes were you know, life depending for myself and my younger brother. And while that may not be 
the best and a most appropriate education for everyone, telling everyone to take the same SAT test at the end of high school and pigeonholing them all based on the results of that test is obviously failed. And so how we could bring more experiential training and education on a smaller subset of what life really is to the daily life of students and help them find a path as part of that education, not just usher them out the door at the end of their fourth year of high school, uh, I think is really critical to the future of our success. And, and in fact, in a post I did over the weekend, I mentioned that, you know, I think the technology industry owes the world. Now, that may be a strong statement, but certainly the technology industry has made a hell of a lot of money off the world. And the vast majority of that money has been made off of nothing. I mean, nothing, really, nothing. Facebook is, is 80% nothing. Google searches, 80% nothing. Uh, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Google. I love all that stuff. Uh, although I don't use Facebook much anymore. All of it's, you know, great for its purpose, but it's really nothing. It's not like we're sending somebody to the moon with the technology being built. It's not like we're, we're curing cancer with the technology being built. We, we are creating a lot of nothing and they're getting a lot of money for it. And it's time for those industries to figure out a way to help guide the population into the future. You know, I know that you guys want to talk about COVID going forward, and so I'll hold off on the, the conversation, but I think COVID is very relevant to how important and aggressive next steps need to be in that regard. The nice thing about having an incredibly intelligent person uh, as part of this interview thing is that you do, you do the segues yourself. So <laughs> it's kind of perfect. It's kind of perfect. So, you know, I think just to touch on a couple of things that you said, you know, I, I have two small children. I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. Um, and, you know, I, I think certainly more than, you know, my parents that uh, we've been involved in the process of you know, trying to figure out what schools they get into and what type of, you know, schooling and, and all that. And, you know, what, what amazed me about, you know, kind of the modern theory of educating young children in a lot of these private schools that, you know, are based off of the original Montessori method and, and different variations of that is this idea that you allow the kids to gravitate towards the things that they naturally gravitate to. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, don't try to force a particular curriculum on them right. and just let them discover you know, the areas where their specific, you know, gene makeup and DNA just kind of uh, push them and, and kind of foster that. And I've noticed in my career, you know, managing, managing folks, what, what was the key differentiator of someone coming into our organization versus another is that I didn't try to say, you know, you have to be, you know, this person in this particular role with blinders on, you just kind of allowed them to determine what areas, let, let them, let them have a little taste of everything, but yep. figure out what areas they excel in because when people enjoy doing and gravitate towards something, they end up doing it well because, you know, they're not being forced to do it. So I think, you know, what, what you're saying is, is incredibly valuable. Well, and, and what you just mentioned is, um, is really important in the sense that uh, uh, even as a young manager in my time at, at HP and, and even before that, I discovered um, through the help of people that are, were willing to come up and challenge me and talk to me, um, and I always made it clear that that's what I expected from the people that worked for me, was you know I learned relatively quickly, thankfully, that um, you know, if somebody was really good at customer service, as an example, don't 
spend 80% of your time getting 20% of benefit out of them by turning them into trying to turn them into a better technician. And conversely, don't take someone who's a fantastic um, technician or engineer and try to turn them into a customer service agent because again, you'll spend 80% of your time making them a poor customer service agent where for 20% of your time, you could have made them an even better engineer. And so what you just said, I think is hugely important to every new manager and leader out there um, thinking about how to place people and how to, how to make them happy in the environment and in, and in return, get the most value out of them. Mark, you have had great life experiences and where you're at in your career is absolutely phenomenal. What a heartwarming story. Based on that, a couple of things that I'd like our listeners to know or understand. Where do you, first of all, get your ideas? What keeps you going? And how do you stay up with the constantly evolving life that we are in, particularly in all the platforms, technology, infrastructures that we are involved in? Yeah, it's it's not easy, but I think it's also, like we talked about, it has to be, um, to some degree, part of your makeup. So, for instance, I could say that I'm lucky, even though I miss it on a regular basis, I could say it's, I'm lucky that I don't have a large, um, as Ralph Laura would call it, a large Winchester mystery house of in- infrastructure and applications that I have to worry about anymore. And when you have that kind of environment, when I, if, for those of you who don't know what Winchester Mystery House is, uh, it's effectively a house that was just had rooms and hallways and doors and windows added willy-nilly with no plan, no consideration about whether a door went outside, went into a wall, uh, windows were covered, or what, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what a lot of infrastructure that people own today and applications that people own today look like. And carrying that burden puts leaders and contributors, uh, engineers, et cetera, at risk because they spend way too much of their time worrying about how to keep that mess afloat. And that doesn't give them a chance to really breathe and really think. I'm not as good at it as, I, as I'd like to be, but I can tell you that the one downside or the, or the one positive of being locked in a room for the last two weeks because I might have the virus is that I am forced to confront in a positive way things that I normally get too busy to think about. And it it has helped open me up again. And that's why everyone needs a sabbatical occasionally. Everyone needs a leader that will give them 10% of their time to do research or whatever it is they want to do outside of their strict work function. And so for me, that's really what I try to do. I try to find uh, somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour and a half a day to read. I don't read something specific, although I do usually read for sort of edutainment, you know, modern books. Not, not Sometimes I'll read pure junk like a Tom Clancy or something, but most of the time I'm reading books that I believe will offer me some insight into the human psyche or to building a company or making great products or something like that. But I also read across the board. I don't just read DevOps as an example. I don't just read how containers should be orchestrated. I don't just read what the best data center technology is. Rather, I try to maintain my own equivalent of of kind of an AI of how do those things all end up together? If, If I make decisions today about what density a server rack should be in a data center, 
what kind of confidence do I have that based on the trends going on in industry, that the density in that server cabinet will will live the 15 years that I plan that data center to survive for. I mean, that's a, that's a simple example, but that's the broader education I force myself to undertake helps me to mitigate those kinds of risks. Just one quick disclaimer. Uh, if any of our listeners don't think Tom Clancy is junk, uh, send your letters directly to Mark. Because I just want to make sure that the opinions uh, expressed here are only it's <laughs> <right. laughs> Of course, he's passed away now, so I feel bad. Yeah, I'm talking exactly. about him yeah. when he's dead. I apologize. That's all right. Um, all right, let's uh, let's pivot a little bit to uh, to the elephant in the room, as it were, to uh, to COVID nineteen and 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 the way you know uh, the, the world has changed in many cases. I think. Uh, as we discussed on previous podcasts, and 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 I'm sure all of us have discussed in, in our private lives as well, there's a significant amount of the disruptions uh, that we're all feeling now that seem to have some permanence to them. Although I think it's you know everyone has their own take on what those permanent disruptions are. I think broadly speaking, I mean, what I know you you've been sequestered more more than than most because of you know your 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 potential to actually have the illness, but. From a, a personal standpoint, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the, the current uh, environment? And then, you know, more broadly speaking, or more specifically, rather, um, you know, as someone that manages a, a substantial technology team, you know, how is that um, informed? What is that experience? You know, the first and foremost, which is not really aligned with your answer directly, is um, that technology in general and the people that could uh, ID or implement technology have in large part failed us relative the royal us, which means me, means you, means Nabil, means doctors in hospitals and hospital administrators and McKesson and all these other companies around the world involved in supplying our frontline soldiers. And they are in soldiers right now uh, fighting this disease. Uh, and that includes bus drivers and food workers and and mailmen and male women and so on and so forth. We failed them because they can't go out and just buy stuff. They just they, it's just not that easy. They just can't go out and buy stuff. The fact that we live in a country that's the richest in the world, that has historically been the envy of the world as the place to go, the place to work, the place to to grow up, the place to experiment, the place to build, and our doctors and nurses are wearing garbage bags reusing masks for five days at a time. That's that's beyond disgraceful. It's disgusting. So anyway, I got my, my soapbox um, uh, part of the conversation out of the way. I would say that, you know, the, the things that make me, what I can worry about or think about as a result of COVID uh, and what it's done to society right now is that I feel that our move into modern technologies accelerating the way it was through the way technology changes and progresses, as people like Ray Kurzweil would tell you, is that we have an accelerating rate of return relative to technology, and that means a reduced period of time for humanity humanity to respond to that technology. And the first rule of any business person when there is a constraint in meeting demand is to find a way to overcome that constraint. Just that simple. If the constraint is I can't get enough money, I get a loan. 
If the constraint is the supply chain is too slow, I find more suppliers. If the constraint is a particular um, material I was using didn't work, I go out and figure out another material to replace the material that I was using, and so on and so on. In a data center world, if I'm a Caterpillar and I go to Google or Microsoft, and when they ask me for a generator, and um, I say, oh, you know, we can't deliver a generator in under 18 months now, and every other generator manufacturer says the same thing, the response won't be from these guys who are growing faster they can build. It won't be, oh, okay, then I guess we just wait. It'll be, how do we build without generators? That's the answer, right? And so what are we facing today? What we're facing today is that every single company in the world that has more than five people working for it is wondering, how can I do more of the stuff I can do if another COVID hits next year? How can I keep working? How can I keep the supply chain? How do I apply AI more effectively to reduce the number of times I need a physical handshake versus a digital handshake? How do I put more RPA in place? How do I do more robotics? So the constraint during a situation like this, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, relative to whole um, plants that deliver food to the country being shut down because of infection, imagine if this infection stayed as bad as it is for even another three months. What might start happening to the supply chain? All of these companies are going to be forced to figure out, how do I mitigate that? So any investments we were making in the rapid adoption of technology take on a whole new meaning now. Because all it takes the average human is to be stung by a bee before they start putting screen up on their windows. Before they stung by a bee, they don't think the screen's necessary. Well, I'll tell you what. They got stung by the whole hive. All of us did. And people are going to be responding in ways that are unpredictable in overall value and timing. But my simple suggestion is that it's likely to accelerate in almost all areas. Absolutely. So just to add to that, Mark, you believe that we've been stung by the the whole hive. Do you believe that that's what the rest of the populace knows as well? Is that what we're being told? Most of the people that I've talked to in our space... This is sort of like a holiday in a lot of ways. The impact of it is not yet felt at, at the degree that we believe that there is. I mean, I don't, I don't think that this is going to be over in the next 30, 60, 90 days. I think we're in it for a long haul. We are at least, best case scenario, stuck in this till we actually have a vaccine or a solution developed and released publicly. Well, and or when we can test at least 30 or 40% of the population. We're not we're near close to doing that. Um, And so, and even with 30 or 40% testing, that only gets us the ability to get some people in certain areas back to work, not necessarily everyone. So I think, I think your point is valid, but I would, um, I would offer a caveat, right? Your point about how some of us don't think it's that serious. Those of us that are, pardon my French, ignorant enough to think that this isn't serious are those of us who live in the ivory tower of, of the Silicon Valley company and companies like that. For those people that have to go to work every day, regardless, they have to be the bus drivers, they have to be the meat packers, they have to be the packagers on factory floors, and they have to work around other people, and they have to figure out how to get daycare when their daycare provider person won't go to work anymore, when they have to figure out how to put food on the table when they're working 12-hour shifts because half the team isn't coming to work, and when they have to figure out how to also educate their kids who can't go to school. This is a real freaking problem. I'm isolated in my house, not just because my wife is worried about potentially getting sick from me, assuming I have 
uh, COVID-19, but because I've got my mother-in-law staying with us right now and she's 80 years old. I am not gonna be the one that wantonly and irresponsibly puts her on death's bed. And so this is a problem that leaders, if not rank and file people like the three of us are gonna recognize is, look, they're, they're all doing their Zooms, same as we're doing a Zoom right now, they're all doing their Zooms right now going, how do we mitigate this the next time? How do we keep making money, in other words, even when this occurs the next time. And the and, best and it way will occur. Yeah, it will. And the best way for them to do that is to remove the constraint. And what's the constraint? People. Now, just for our listeners, Mark, and I think I would I'd like you to share that because we, you and I had this conversation last week or so, that you felt that you had COVID. However, you've not been able to get it tested. Could you expand a little bit on that, the, the circumstances and the fact that we said that the testing kits are available, it's not as intrusive as it was. And there's re- these resources that are available uh, for, for people to verify if they either have it or not and or if they're antibodies. So what's your experience been like? Yeah, well, my experience has been for a little over two weeks now, something like 15 days, that I'm told uh, in the state of Nevada that the only way for me to get a test is if I'm in a vital function or if I'm literally in in need of immediate hospitalization because of the seriousness of my symptoms. And so the downside of my current situation relative to being locked in a 11 by 11 or 12 by 12 room for the last two weeks is that I could find out that I have allergies as an example if I got tested and I could go back into the world, at least the world of the rest of my family in my home. But in order for me to even try to get a task, which I have unlikely ability to get based on what I just told you, I have to go into the throat of the lion to do it. I have to go into a place that's likely to give me the virus. I have to go to an ER or an urgent care and convince medical staff there that my symptoms justify giving out one of the few tests that are available. And if I do find out I'm not infected, I could very well get infected because I'm there. So instead of just being able to go to a drive up test facility or to get a test in the mail and test myself, which I know in theory is coming, but right now that's not a reality, at least not in this part of Nevada. And that's what's so amazing about it. What's so amazing is that you know, it's it's easy for people like us to to talk about you know the theoretical need to to get a test because of you know some theoretical concern. You're actually living it, right? So if you take your experience, and obviously you have a lot of resources, you have the ability to to do what you need to do. You're not struggling for you know getting healthcare and all that stuff, and and you have the the ability to work from home and and all those things we mentioned earlier. Just the notion that you multiply that not just across the 330 million people in the U.S., but the, the billions of people around the world, I mean, the fact that it's so ubiquitous, yeah. and I mean, it just, just looking at it from that perspective just shows you how impactful this is going to be. Again, if they had a, a vaccine tomorrow, the, the way in which people have now understood the fragility of society, the fragility of their own, you know, existence that they've taken for granted, you know, since, I guess, 1918, 
is, is going to be far-reaching. And I just don't see people, even after a vaccine, being all that excited about getting into a plane or going to a baseball game or going right. to a large you know, rally or event. And, and in our world, we're going from conference to conference to conference with thousands, if not tens of thousands of people present. I yep. came, you know, I was in PTC this January. It feels like that was 20 years ago. Right. And it just doesn't feel like that's ever going to come back with the same level of gusto that, 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 that we have had, whether COVID-19 is in existence or not. I think there's some truth to that. And, and which is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm a believer that the best way for us to get past this is not just getting to the point where we can turn on some of the economy with assuredness because we've tested, you know, 30 or 40 percent of the population and we know where safe populations are and, you know, migration patterns and stuff like that. But to where we get to the point where when we go through an airport uh, security checkpoint, we get tested for COVID at the same time. When we go into a hotel, we get tested for, it doesn't matter if you got tested five minutes before at the grocery store. When you go someplace, you get tested. And is that overkill? Maybe it is. You know, maybe maybe the pattern will be that in a year or two, we'll understand the progression of COVID-like viruses to where we can start treating it the way we do the flu. And a certain number of people die from the flu every year. And uh, many of those people die because of underlying conditions. And many of them also die because they don't take the flu vaccine. And that's a societal risk that we've accepted. But it's also a societal risk that tends to impact society at a much more gradual pace. We, we probably are seeing more patients in ICUs from COVID across the country on a given two week period than we see patients from the flu over the course of a six or eight week period during flu season. Yeah, and that's where perspective comes into place, you know, right. because you have the counter argument of, you know, this is the number versus that, that number. Yeah. We're yeah. overreacting because, you know, you have so many tens of thousands of people in one case or another without taking the scale and the timing in, in, into account. It's just it's a fascinating, you know, almost economical argument about, you know, probabilities. And, and right. you know, we've all had to take a crash course in, you know, how, how these scales work and how percentages and, and perspectives really, um, you know, impact all of us. It's right. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, one of the things that I would worry about the most is that there, you know, there are 7 billion people on the planet. And if this virus ends up hitting even a billion, that's a hell of a lot of opportunities for the virus to decide to take on a new shape. And if on a new shape, then our vaccines may not work anymore. So being able to stay ahead of that and being able to show on a regular basis, how effective we are at controlling spread through aggressive testing, et cetera, et cetera, I think is, is unfortunately going to be a minimum requirement for some time to come. And it just speaks to a lot of, um, uh, you know, interaction and, and coordination internationally that is just difficult to, to imagine in this era of divisiveness. No, it's, it's really unfortunate. And um, in fact, uh, you know, there's a, a small group that I've um, uh, kicked off with the help of a bunch of other um, uh, important folks in the field, including Nabil um, called United Against uh, C-19. And it's very nascent. We haven't done really anything from a help standpoint yet. We're trying to find our footing, try to figure out where we can help. But, um, you know, one of, the, one of the initial points that I made to the group when we were sharing ideas was, yes, I'm a bit of an idealist, but wouldn't it be great? If we could create an organization that didn't give a shit about whether your last name was Paryavi and you happened to be in Tehran, or your last name was um, was Moskowitz and you happened to be in Israel, or your last name was 
Putin and you happened to be in Russia, it didn't make any difference. That the ability to get the things you needed and the information you needed were consistent, transparent, reliable, and fair trade-like from a, from a cost perspective. Okay, I'm gonna reference a really dumb movie. I still enjoyed it, but um, really dumb movie, Independence Day. It was stupid, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed it. It was fun. The, um, what, did, what happened in that movie? We were invaded by a virus. The virus was gonna suck the life out of the planet one way or the other. Almost identical in, in, in overall theory. What did the world do? came together and acted like a world. Of course, US-centric, but nonetheless, it acted like a world as opposed to a bunch of individual nations, peoples, and tribes. And to me, if we wanna be aggressive about how we deal with these situations going forward, that's the only way to do it. Gutting the CDC and, and gutting organizations that help, or blaming organizations that help, like the WHO, that help in mitigating those kinds of risks and trying to bring the world together and fighting those kinds of enemies, I think our, our minimum success criteria for us going forward. Sorry to get political uh, there. So on, on, on that note, last question about COVID-19, and then we're going to get a little bit more of technical thoughts as well. What are your thoughts about Bill Gates promoting the whole idea of carrying a vaccination card and identification for every individual traveling, socializing? Yeah, um, I'll be honest. I don't know if I have a good answer other than the fact that with the exception of what... Um, this uh, uh, lady, Joanne Friedman, in the group that you're a part of now, um, UAC19, has suggested all of the tracking mechanisms I've seen and heard about feel to me way too much like this is a great opportunity to lock in the last bit of freedom that any of us thought we had relative to our relationship with big companies and government. And some governments are already forcibly taking those extra privileges. Um, And and frankly, it terrifies me that we could um, end up enslaving ourselves in our effort to protect ourselves. I believe you and I spoke at this conference in San Francisco last year, the year before that. I was promoting this whole idea of us stepping back and looking at the foundation and working from the foundation up. What it seems like is that we've actually made a lot of great strides, but we've also built a house of cards, both from the mankind and technology we are very reactive, we're not proactive. Incidents like COVID-19 was bound to happen. More of these incidents are going to happen. I mean, you go back in time, we've had plenty of other events that have happened in the last 100 years, if not more, yep. Yep. and we have not learned from it. No. You know, if I, if I, as an IT, if I go to my CFO and say, we really need a business continuity plan, and the CFO says, well, you know, okay, what do you think we need? I said, well, I need a person from every line of business involved in a, in, in a planning strategy to determine, you know, what is actually business critical and what are the, what are the links we need to try to maintain in the event of a debt disaster based on X types of disasters as being most likely. And what almost every business person does is evaluate the risk to near-term opportunity versus the potential savings um, that would occur should a disaster actually happen. And in many cases, unfortunately, companies take the devil's choice. The devil's choice is, I hope that a disaster big enough to make me regret my decision won't occur in a time that would justify the value of that, uh, of, of spending the money. And in the meantime, I'll ask my IT leader to do the, um, the IT tries to save the world approach and doesn't bother the business. And so that's a, 
that's okay for an individual business. It's a risk that you can carry. But let's go back. Let's go back 20 years. And let's say that we're spending $10 billion a year on risk mitigation, planning, um, ensuring that we have um, pipeline available, ensuring that we have direct line access to turning on unique manufacturing in the event of a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. 10 billion a year, which I'm sure far outstrip whatever we were spending until 2016. And, and that includes donations to the who, whoever it is. Make it 20 billion a year, 20 billion a year. We go back 20 years, two times two, that's four. So that's $400 billion. How much does this do in stimulus over the last three weeks? How many people are scrounging for scraps to feed themselves right now? $360 billion in stimulus that should be funded and $2.3 trillion for C-19. Not even, not even 20%, not even 20% exactly. of one bill. Yeah. And, they, and they're planning on doing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, it will that's, to- that's 20 years of prevention. Yeah. Absolutely. So I believe we should have started this process 20 years ago. We should start thinking about tomorrow today, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk some good things. What are some of the, the positives that you believe are going to come out of COVID-19? And what potentially is a new normal state for all of us? You know, the first positive is a simple majority of humanity is closer to humanity now. I've made more contact with more people over the last six weeks than I did in the previous year. I have more important, not BS conversations like, oh, who do you work for? Like we do in Silicon Valley every day when you meet somebody new, real conversations with people. And I think that that's awesome, right? I think that's awesome. I don't like the fact that it took a funeral to get us together, but the idea that we can't separate science, humans, and technology anymore, that the three need to find a better blend in order for us to respond more quickly and efficiently to problems like this in the future, and that um, it is actually obvious that we are a global village. We are isolated because we have oceans on both sides of us. We are not isolated. This is a global village, and shit happens everywhere if it happens anywhere. And so I think those are all positive. I think the, I think the negatives are that, as um, Philip so succinctly pointed out earlier, I think a lot of us are going to um, make major changes in the how and, and how we execute our lives on a daily basis. I mean, I'm terrified of the fact that I may not just go up and hug a family member the first time I see them six months from now. I'm, I'm a, a huge believer in the transfer of, of emotion, of trust and friendliness and, and, and um, loyalty and all that stuff can, that can come through with a single handshake. And the idea that the handshake may disappear. The idea that we may accelerate the idea of more joblessness through automation and not have government level answers for how to deal with that. You know, those are just some of the things that really scare me. So the positives and the negatives. The positives, are, I'm, I'm thrilled about. The negatives, frankly, they terrify me. Absolutely. Yeah, we need to be concerned about that. I think it's an opportunity for us to take the, the leadership role and 
and bring awareness to the to the masses Absolutely. whereby those need to be addressed and if they're not addressed today they're going to result into bigger problems as we move forward so we see in all these science fiction movies there's like this dark the the evil part of one nation one world are we there yet is it kind of like are we living that dark age science fiction life i think we're closer than we realize to to use an overused phrase we are all frogs in the pot and the water is more than steaming um and we just don't know it because we've been sitting in it the whole time you know we we have more and more rights taken away from us on a regular basis and covid has a huge risk of doing more of that i mean we we can see it in places like ecuador and hungary and turkey places where existing leaders are aggressively taking advantage of the situation to to make dictates and and put more authority in the hand of the executive and i think that that's terrifying i think conversely fairly controversial thought john lennon was probably the first one of the first to popularize the notion when we think about the world we think about nations and we give a shit about all these borders and we give a shit about different languages and tribes and and how they were raised and all that stuff and that's great i mean i'm i'm all in on on people maintaining cultural differences and all that kind of stuff but realistically if europe can be the eu if the united states 50 independent states filled with literally every human from across mankind can be 50 states under one government then at some point as a world i think we need to look more closely at how we remove the psychological barriers and the and the made up barriers of finance and 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 rights and stuff like that um so that we can have a more universal approach to how um people's rights are treated um how we travel uh how we marry all of that stuff i think your point can be taken very dystopianly um, i think a um a, something closer to a, a an actual united nations of of being able to actually execute from a united nations standpoint is actually maybe not a bad thing if we could do it right I think if there's one thing if there's one thing to look at and one one benefit um to let's let's call it the younger generation of society um it's that you know a lot of the the divisions um that that we see a lot of those silos that 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 you mentioned that that have been created don't necessarily redound in individual cultures to uh to the current generation you know the young adults that are that are that are turning into uh, adults that have grown up um in an age where the world is incredibly small because of you know access to the internet and obviously there are pockets where that's not necessarily available but if you look at right. you know things like the arab spring and these other i mean they 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 don't seem to be as intensely divisive um and intensely idyllic um in the yep. in the bad way um yep. and in in um uh, younger uh in the younger generation so so hopefully it there there becomes this generational kind of uh changing of the guard where um it's it doesn't it it moves from the us against them type of mentality to right. you know you don't have to necessarily worry about the enforcement element of creating a better humanity because yeah. you don't have to enforce better humanity everyone should just embrace the idea that we want an earth that's going to be around for our kids and our grandkids and you know these fights about um n- nonsensical purity tests in in, in different uh, areas of life um are just that you know they're yep. they're designed um you know to be divisive 
unfortunately. Yeah, there's a there's a great book that I would recommend to virtually anyone with a warning that if you're incredibly religious and and are dogmatic in the idea that anything that might challenge one of your beliefs can't be read and, and accepted, then don't read it. But for anybody else who's got a, even a, mid, a smidgen of openness in, in the way of thinking about how to live uh, life and what a human is and can be, I highly recommend Mark Harris's book. I think his name's Mark Harris. Pretty sure his last name is Harris, called Moral Landscape. And it's the notion that as a, as a society, I mean, as simply put, as a society, as, as, a, as humanity, we owe it to ourselves to determine what moral actually means. And right now, like honesty, morality is driven by what we believe individually, what we believe as religions, what we believe as nations. And while somebody in an evangelical church may have an opinion of what morality means, their morality is very, very different from my morality or someone who's from an Orthodox Jewish religion or from a Shinto religion or or that grew up in the outback of, of, um, of Brazil or, or Australia. And um, uh, the notion that there are some things that might be considered unalienable relative to morals is to me extremely interesting. And, um, and if, if for the interesting portion only, worth a read. So Mark, from a technical perspective, you being involved in 5G Edge and the data center, cloud computing, so on and so forth, with the recent events that we had in the UK where people were burning 5G towers thinking that 5G has been the root cause. And there's plenty of theories around that, from ham radios to 5G causing flu to coronavirus. In your opinion, how real is that? Well, it's real that we have people that are willing to buy off on um, stupid conspiracy theories. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we have somebody that's running the country that's willing to do that. Um, so, and if we can accept him doing it, or at least we as a portion of the society can accept him doing it, then certainly the average um, shop owner or truck driver or salesperson at a tech company is going to do the same thing if they so desire. I think what is missing in, um, in the discussion, though, is, is often what we do in technology and so much other parts of society is that we work on solutions that treat the symptom. And the symptom is that people are, um, people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing relative to these conspiracy theories. That's the symptom, but what they, what they, um, sh- what we as a society should be looking at or what is it psychologically that makes someone feel um, justified or makes them feel better about themselves for following these conspiracy theories? Because in some cases, it's just pure ignorance. But in many cases, it's willful decision to satisfy an internal fear or concern. Besides just technology itself, we need to focus a little more on ethics, humanity, mankind, survival, and not everything be monetary. It's not about money. It's not about right. money. It's about our survival. It's about the next generation, the generations thereafter, that we can leave this planet to them and enjoy right. and live life. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of people that would argue with me, and, and I, I'm not going to name any of them, but there are some people that would argue with me about the idea that um, there will be mass unemployment. Um, they might call me a Luddite, but 
major organizations around the world are looking at things like basic income. And so if, if it wasn't a serious risk that a lot of people were going to be unemployed, then I doubt that those people would be spending that kind of money and effort into looking at even sampling those kinds of projects like they did in Norway or as a, as a trial run. And certainly there, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it here in the U S as well for the future, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a real concern that, you know, even, even if you only put it in the terms of financial uh, impact and revenue, if all of the companies, you know, the top 20 or 30 companies remaining 10 or 15 years from now have all the money and none of the workers who buys their product, no one. Right. Robots. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Really enjoyed seeing you. Great conversations as always. Can't wait to get out. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. see you in person. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Grab, a, grab a cigar and a whiskey somewhere when we get the chance. Awesome. No, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.